Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is the uh, the official color commentator of the of the Hockey PDO Cast. It's Mike Johnson. Mike, what's going on, man? <laughs> Not too much. I like the designation, and uh, I'm just in Pittsburgh getting ready for Game Five, and uh, wondering if this season will end on Thursday night. Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's looking very possible just based on the way this this series is going. I mean, you've gotten a healthy dose of this very Sharks team this postseason. You uh, you covered the first round series against the Kings, and then you did the Western Conference Final in its entirety against the Blues. Uh, I guess you can speak to the the impressiveness of Thornton and Burns' beards in the flesh, though. They, they are something to behold. I mean, on on a practical scale, now I still can't grow a beard. I can't. I barely ever have to shave once a week. But I, I can't imagine that's comfortable to walk around with day to day, but even mm. more so when you got to go play a sport, you're hot and sweaty and stuff flying around. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm all for, you know, embracing the, the playoff beers, but man, they are taken to another level. I'm sure they will be happy, uh, for whenever their season ends, at least to be able to shave those off and, and get back to normal life. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as someone who has a, a medium sized beard myself, it's, uh, it definitely it, it's it's becoming warmer now during the summer, and uh, I'm starting to think about shaving it. And and I, I can't imagine how much those guys are sweating during these games. Um, let's uh, okay. I wanted to ask you something about the the Penguins because it it it's pretty clear that there's a distinction to be made between they obviously have the team speed in terms of guys like Haglin and Kessel, just purely how fast they can skate. But what really sticks out to me from watching them is how fast the decisions they make are versus the ones the Sharks are making right now, where it seems like they know exactly what they want to do with the puck pretty much as soon as they get it, regardless of who on their team is retrieving the puck in the first place. I don't, I don't know. Is it is that kind of sticking out to you as well when you're watching these games? Yes. Um, you know, there's kind of there's three kinds of speed in hockey. And, and, you know, there's how fast you can skate, which is Kessel and Hagelin and the guys that can fly around the ice. There's how fast the puck can move, which is faster than anyone can skate. And, and maybe the most important one is how fast you can make decisions and accurate decisions. And I think in all those areas, Pittsburgh has been better than San Jose. And, and I think, really, when you watch the series, there are a lot of different reasons why Pittsburgh has been the better team throughout the four games. But um, how cleanly they break out of their own end zone and how often they do so 
has been surprising and as important of anything as anything that they do that has allowed them to to, to have the three one lead. So uh, you're right, and and what's maybe most amazing is that we're not talking about guys who traditionally you would associate as being gifted puck movers, guys who would make quick decisions and be able to make good passes on the tape, even though they might be slightly riskier than just ringing around the boards. And when Ben Lovejoy is going back and without any hesitation, snapping one up the middle onto a guy's tape, you know that that team is in sync. So uh, Mike Sullivan deserves a lot of credit. The players do. But I think the other element of speed, and, and I do believe this to be the case, is that they generally have a little bit more time because um, the San Jose Sharks' top players are not getting in on the forecheck. They're not pressuring them, the defense uh, of Pittsburgh, as much as I think the Sharks' defense are feeling the pressure from Pittsburgh. So uh, I think they're given a little bit more time than some of the than than the Sharks have seen because the, the forwards on San Jose just aren't getting in on the forecheck uh, as quickly. Mm. And uh, why, why do you think that is? Is it just because the, the Penguins are making those decisions, those passes as quickly as, as we, we said they are? Well, I think um, what, what Pittsburgh has done in the neutral zone in pressuring mm-hmm. the dump-ins so that the, the, the good support and the tight with speed support that any good dump-in requires to, to get pressure is not there all the time. So when you're by yourself in the neutral zone and you're getting pressure, you just kind of dump it in the corner but you have no teammates within 30 or 40 feet of you, well, it gets a lot easier to head back there, make a pass, get your head up, make a decision, and, and get going the other way as opposed to when you have a guy in hot pursuit and you know you're going to get hit, and then you're more likely to just put it around the board. So um, especially on that number one line, because Thornton Pavelski and Hurdle, when Hurdle was healthy, um, they play a, almost a different style than the other line, and what they do in the neutral zone with Joe Thornton, low in the zone, Pavelski and Hurdle playing in their own end down below the goal line, and then Thornton kind of coming back, buying time and space as the sport comes with speed and then making good passes. That hasn't been there. Joe Thornton hasn't had the time or space or the ability to create it in the neutral zone to allow his linemates to get up and get the blue line, make plays, or dump it in with support. And the loss of Thomas Hurdle, who is skilled enough to play those guys, but also big and quick enough to get on the forecheck and help turn Fox over is not helping their cause either. But that line to me has been the, the biggest drop-off for San Jose because I saw how great they were. L.A., Nash, um, St. Louis, they were almost unstoppable, but uh, they have not been able to find it through the neutral zone like they did in the first three rounds. Mm. Yeah, and with with Hurdle out these past few games, they also haven't really seemed to to find a good replacement on that top line wing spot yet. I, I know that Melker Carlson scored a goal in Game Four, and and they've tried guys like Zubris, and I think that uh, it, it was interesting when they were scrambling late in late in Game Four, they actually bumped Couture up there and and, and really just tried to load up that line. But I don't know, it, it, it just seems like. Thornton and Pavelski are such good players that anyone should theoretically be able to, you know, play with them and 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 produce effectively just because they're going to put them in such good positions to succeed. But it did seem like Hurdle, especially in those first couple of playoff series, was the perfect fit with those two guys. And and for whatever reason, they haven't really been able to make it work since. Yeah, I mean, part of it's chemistry. I mean, even as good as the two Joes are, I mean, a little bit of chemistry helps when you're familiar with what those guys want to do. I think part of it's because Thomas Hurdle was is a pretty capable defensive player. 
and uh, was willing to play down below the goal line, uh, allowing Pavelski and Thornton to not always be down there. Um, and, he's, and he's strong enough because when they dubbed the puck in that line when they were all healthy, it was almost always Pavelski and Hurdle it getting in on the forecheck. And Hurdle was strong enough to hit a guy, stop the puck, and then protect a little bit so that he can then offer up the old pressure release to um, to Joe Thornton on the far side, and then Thornton weaves his magic. So uh, he plays a vital role, and I think we ran some stats. Up until his injury, Tomas Hurdle had the most grade-A, high-quality, high-danger, whatever you want to determine them, scoring chances of any player in the playoffs. He was on the receiving end of so many chances because of what you talked about, how good Joe and Joe are, but also because he stops the puck and is able to get the puck to those guys in the offensive zone where then they can make the finishing play to create the chance. And, and, and they miss that. And, and I think when you, when you watch this series and whenever you see San Jose buzzing around in the offensive zone, generally it's, it's the lower lines. It, it's, it's Tierney's lines. It's Spalding line. I think because they're just a little bit quicker at getting in on the forecheck. Now, they may not finish the chances like the top couple lines can, but at least they're getting in on the play a little bit more uh, because they're just a little bit quicker. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, hey, Mike, I wanted to get your perspective on on the idea of score effects, just because we see it work its magic all postseason, and then most recently we saw it in Game Four where the Penguins kind of sat back a little bit with mm-hmm. that two goal lead late in the game, and and the Sharks took advantage and really played uh, the best sustained hockey we've seen them play in this entire series. It feels like, and I don't know, it, it's it. I always have this tricky balance in my head because I understand that you know there's this human element to it, just with, in the terms of way the ways humans are wired where uh it's human nature to to kind of sit back and and be i don't don't even know what the way to describe it just like not be as as kind of going full bore and trying to go 110 percent because you know that you're where the other team wants to be at the moment but like if you're if you're a coach how do you sort of prevent against that because we always hear coaches talk about how they need to keep playing the right way and keep playing their own game but but when it comes when it comes to it it never actually winds up working out that way it, well, it's clearly very difficult because it's been that way for just about every team yes. we can think of. Yeah. And you, you hit it on the nail on the head that it, it is human nature that guys have a tendency to sit back. Okay, we have the lead. We don't want to make the big mistake. Let's just make sure that we make them earn it. Don't give them anything easy. All those kind of thoughts go through your head. And you think, well, you got a goalie. All we need is 20 minutes. We're talking six, seven shifts each, and, and we'll get out of here with the win. So that is uh, the reality that just about everyone goes through. I think it starts with the coach, and it also starts with your top players, the guys who are going to play the most. And, you know, there is the idea that you should play intelligently, not make risky plays, don't dump it out in front blindly, don't throw any hope pass up the middle, because, you know, for all the reasons we just talked about. But uh, the coach and the top players, they have to be able to continue to make plays to skate, to be aggressive, and to think about trying to score. And when they do that, I think it, 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 it filters down to the rest of the team. It's when your top guys start sitting back and just defending, then everyone starts doing it. And uh, The one message, if I was a coach and I was trying to limit the score effects, which is very difficult, I would just be the one, I just skate. Guys, you got to skate. You got to move your feet. That's all I mean, move your feet. Because when you start waiting and looking for passes and not thinking about attacking, then the game catches up to you and passes mm-hmm. you by. If you skate all the time, 
that's what opens up things. That's what gets your legs moving, your hands moving, and your head moving to make the next better play. So if I was the coach, in this case Mike Sullivan in game four, I'd be up and down the bench. Boys, we have to skate. Got to move your feet. Got to move your feet. Got to move your feet. And then trust that you guys will make the right decision. Yeah, no, the first coach that uh, figures out how to consistently get that message to his players will be a, a very wealthy and successful yeah. individual, I feel like. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think the rare occasions, like when I'm thinking of the times when I played in some of those teams, like the very best teams when you played had the ability to not mm. sit back. And I think those teams were teams that loved playing with the puck, loved to create offense. They weren't defensive teams by nature. And they had a lot of depth. So even the third and fourth line guys weren't thinking, I'm only out here to shoot it out anyways, no matter what the score is. The third and fourth lines also think, I want to score as well. And so I think of those great Detroit teams in the late 90s, early 2000s, when they had all the Russians and, and you know, Marty LaPointe and McCarthy Grind line and all those guys. I think of the Ottawa Senators teams in the early 2000s to mid who were lighting it up and making it a uh, Stanley Cup final. I found like those are the teams that they'd get up for, and it'd be far more likely the game would end up seven one than four two, because they kept pushing forward and and they had the right combination of style and personnel to maybe make it more likely that they could hang in there playing the same way. Right. And I, I do think, you know, we spend a lot of time, uh, thinking from the perspective of the team that's up where, uh, we kind of were critical of them for being too conservative and not wanting to make the costly play that makes them look as, look like the goat. But there also is the other side of it where we don't really discuss how the team that's, that's, that's trailing is all of a sudden kind of just going balls to the walls and trying to tie the game up and, and just, you know, playing more aggressive hockey, trying to create, uh, better scoring chances and stuff like that. So it is really sort of a two way street in that regard. It is, and 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 we always hear the well, the pundits or critics or whoever saying, "Where was that desperation in the first forty minutes? Where was that kind of effort and, and sense of urgency early on?" And again, it's it, it's part of its human nature that you're you're about to lose, but part of it's also you're willing to accept a greater degree of risk. So you open the game up, you'll give up more chances, and and you'll give up the odd two on one or three on two at the expense of trying to create offense and. And that's what, you know, San Jose was doing as they were trying to get back into the game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, part of it, you can give a little bit of credit to the uh, to the team chasing uh, because they changed their game as well. And they get a little bit further away from their system, a little looser, and that opens things yeah, up. For sure. Um, okay, so if you're coaching uh, the Sharks, put yourself in Pete DeBoer's shoes, what, what adjustments are you making uh, – can can I be Mike Sullivan instead? <laughs> I'd rather be Mike well, I think, Sullivan. I think I think I think we can both easily do that job. Just just keep doing what you're doing, guys. Just just keep doing it. <laughs> Yeah, yes, more, than, more than the same. Exactly. So, I think the the one thing that I keep circling back to for looking at the Sharks team is I don't I don't quite understand why they're riding this Polak and Dylan pairing as much as they are. I understand that you want to kind of spread the wealth and you don't want to ride your top guys too much because then you're gonna there's gonna be sort of a negative effect on their performance. But at the same time, it just like late in the game, for example, in Game Four, they desperately need a goal and and guys like Spalling and Polak are out there, and I'm just wondering uh, whether Pete DeBoer has really been paying attention to how those guys have been playing in, in this in his entire postseason really yeah i mean uh, yeah. i i think coaches well i mean every coach pete DeBoer as well i mean i think he he probably wants he saw the first two rounds and and the team won and the team was was always in control and looked pretty dominant even um if the underlying numbers of, of a Pollock dylan pairing 
um, were, were not great. Uh, he wants to appreciate what they've done and, and he wants to keep, he wants to keep things consistent. Doesn't want to send a message to his team like, oh no, we're changing everything because we're down. Except maybe it's time to change everything because you're yeah. down. Like, there's no reason, reason to worry about tiring guys out. There's two days between every game. Who cares if they get tired? Like, I mean, let them play the top four guys so much that you get to a point where, like, okay, now they're suffering. Don't worry about in case their game falls off. Push them to the point where their game might fall off. Then spot in Polak and Dylan. I think the matchup against Pittsburgh has really highlighted that third pairing's defensive issues, just the foot speed, getting in races, turning pucks over the pressure. They were more effective, seemingly more effective against the bigger bodies of LA and, and, and St. Louis. Where you might think if you're Pete DeBoer, we'd like those guys to, to bang around, clear the front of the net, be a little more physical, uh, send a message kind of idea, as opposed to we'd like the guys who just want to get the puck out of our end on somebody's tape. Because even when Dylan and Polak play well, and I mean, again, I've been with them for six weeks, and Pete DeBoer has been very complimentary of, of them mm-hmm. as a pair yeah. publicly. They do a, good, a decent job defending and, and not giving up big scoring chances, but what they don't do is once they do defend and turn a puck over, they don't do a great job of then transitioning it to a player. They just shoot it out a lot. And so they get in that spin cycle, defend, turn it over, shoot it out, defend some more, turn it over, shoot it out, change. And while you're not getting scored on, perhaps, and you might be hitting guys and blocking shots, you're not really generating any offense going the other way. And that's where San Jose needs to get to. They need to generate stuff. It's not just about stopping Pittsburgh. It's about getting their own offense going. And I think um, that's where that third pairing has has, has struggled throughout the playoffs, but maybe even more so against, against Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like in 2016 we we use this crutch kind of quote quote unquote stay at home defenseman term for guys like Polak and Dylan where you know they're they're more they're just comfortable being in their own zone and 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 defending in front of the net and clearing the crease and stuff. But it does feel like if you're going to use that term stay at home defenseman, it's much more fitting for a guy like let's say even a Vlasic or a Martin where they're very defensively responsible and they're great in their own zone, but they can also do enough to kind of generate other stuff as well rather than just being one trick ponies like that yeah i mean ideally the best defensive defenseman wouldn't play in his own end wouldn't have to play defense wouldn't that be the best i mean it's not possible but i mean by definition if you don't ever if you're not ever in your own end then you don't have to worry about anything you're a perfect defensive defenseman Mm. so and i think that's where the martins and 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 the uh, vlasics are, are exceptional is that um when they are down there, as every defenseman will be, they're very good. But they're also good at getting out of there. And that's, that, that's the difference between, you know, average NHL defenders who don't produce points and above-average NHL defenders who, can, who don't produce points is how little time they, they spend on their own end and how quickly they can help their team transition yeah. to the offense. Okay, so other than don't play your worst players as much as you are, uh, what other adjustments are we talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, I'm... I, you know what? I don't. I guess I don't see a ton of tactical changes coming up for for San Jose. I, I, it seems like a bit of a cop out, but I don't think Pete DeBoer is going to change much. He might shuffle his lines around. You might see Couture up with Pavelski and Thornton maybe a little bit more often. That kind of stuff. But I think well, he's going to try to suggest, and I think he might believe this is that these have all been one goal games except for last one, which is a two goal game with a goal late. 
there's been two overtime games. Um, we haven't played our best. We haven't had anything remotely close to a good start. We haven't gotten the first goal, partly because we haven't been very good, partly because when we do get a chance, their goal has been better than ours. Um, so we're, we're not that far off. Even though it feels when you watch the game and you look at the numbers, they are pretty far off. I'm sure in his mind and in the dress room, he's trying to impart the idea that they're really not. And if they can just win one game somehow, um, some way, whether it's a, a brilliant performance or just upping their level, playing the same style they've always played, then they're right back on home ice and heading back to California and, and, and they're, they're right in the series, down 3-2 going home. So I don't think I see a ton of tactical changes. Um, and I don't even know exactly what they can do because the biggest one I would want to encourage, if I could try, would be to uh, kind of adjust the puck support routes of Joe Thornton's line. That's hard to do because it's been amazing. So to suggest for them to do anything different would be tough. But I think that's, as I watch them, the more they get strung out and separated from each other as they move up the ice out of their own end into the neutral zone, the less success they're having. And, and so I would encourage that line to play more like all the other lines where let's come lower, closer to the support and, and be close to each other because trying to string Joe Thornton out to the far blue line uh, isn't working. So that'd be one tactical change for that line specifically. I would try to, I would try to get, um, but beyond that, I'm not sure how much they can do um, beyond a little bit of roster shuffling. Yeah. And you, you know, you're saying Pete DeBoer is probably thinking, looking at this series and being like, Oh, we're, we're really close. We're right in this. And he's not wrong in the sense that a couple bounces here or there. And all of a sudden some of these one goal games go their own way, but you're also right in the sense that it really hasn't felt like Pittsburgh's ever been in serious danger in this series. And if, if you're San Jose, you, you need nope. to, sort of control your own fate and try and and try and force some of the luck to go your way as opposed to just kind of sitting back and being like oh well hopefully things wind up turning around because uh, we haven't really seen many signs that it will heading into game five or even game six and beyond yeah you're right um you're right uh, and I, and a big part of san jose's game is the power play not only for the goals he creates, but for the, the offensive zone time, the touches, the confidence, the feel-good vibes that offensive players get for playing on the power play. I remember them very well. When you're out there and you have to handle it, you get a couple shots. Even if you don't score, it, it filters down to your five-on-five game because you, you just you got that mojo going. You're feeling good. You got your confidence, got your legs. Uh, and so I don't know how you could coach, try to drop penalties. Um... But whether it's encouraging guys to move their feet more along the wall to like not let themselves get pinned, whether it's challenging guys by trying to get to the net with, on them, you know, by trying to drive guys to the net, forcing, trying to force guys into taking penalties. Um, but the problem is, and, and it's the root of all problems for San Jose, is guys take penalties when they're usually losing races, when they're, when they're chasing the game, when they're behind. They've got to reach, they've got to hook, they've got to pull, they've got to hold. Well, if you're generally faster, and if you have the puck more often than the other team, you don't get yourself in those spots very often where you are in trouble chasing uh, behind the play and then forced to, to take a penalty. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem. The speed compounded and manifested itself in all areas. But I think the, the lack of power play opportunities 
which you give Pittsburgh credit for, for being disciplined, um, but also the speed of their game is, is, is not, uh, should not be underrated with regards to the impact on the five on five play for the top players for San Jose. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that, that that's very fair. I, I, like, I'm just looking at trying to think of uh, you know some sort of profound adjustments myself, and I'm I'm sort of drawing a blank. Honestly, like Pittsburgh just seems like uh, it's been yeah. a bad matchup for these guys on an, on an X's and O's level. And like, for example, just it, it's such a different animal than anything they've really seen this postseason because uh, obviously San Jose kind of took advantage of their team speed and the, how fast they were making their their plays against some of the guys they played in the Western Conference bracket, but. Like watching this Penguins team with their breakouts, for example, like we were discussing, they they run this alley oop play more than any team, uh, probably more than the other twenty nine teams combined, where their defensemen just fling it up in the air and it goes high in the neutral zone. And they're, they're, I'm generally not a fan of that play because it is sort of basically a turnover. But at the same time, they're they're so well equipped with their forwards up front to to track those pucks down and then either get it quickly into the offensive zone or draw those penalties. And and it's just San Jose hasn't really kind of had to face an animal like this and I, I don't really know how they how they kind of combat that yeah yeah well, I've, I've been watching the games thinking the same and and you know that alley-oop play it, it it can be frustrating like you know what make a pass to someone please but can you imagine I always equate yeah. it to you're you're back receiving a punt but you can't call a fair catch so the defender's there ready to catch the puck knowing that if he catches it he can get hit if he fumbles it the guy can dance by him for a breakaway, as we saw it happen one time against Nashville. Uh, Roman Yossi got danced as the puck bounced over his stick on an alley-oop. Um, or the other alternative is, like, I don't trust either one of those situations, so I just keep backing up, which then allows them to skate into the puck with some speed. And, and so, it, you know, unless you're really confident at catching pucks out of the air, it can, be, it can be a tricky thing to handle, especially with the speed that you know is coming at you. Um, and when I watched this series, having watched San Jose so closely through the first two rounds, the way that Pittsburgh is kind of layering their defense and adding extra bodies into every little puck battle is exactly what San Jose was doing to their opponents. And they were quicker always with, on the back check, if it's a two-on-two, there was always a shark there fishing away at the puck to make it a two-on-three. If it was a two-on-two below the goal line on a cycle, there was always a third, sometimes fourth guy down there fishing away, bumping, helping turn pucks over. And that's what I see with Pittsburgh. They always have an extra stick in there. They always have an extra body around the puck. So when you're a skilled guy for the Sharks, you're looking up to make a play and you're worrying about the defender that is engaged with you primarily. But here comes Carl Hagelin on a flyby to bump you or slash your stick or get a skate in the way. And you're like, I'm just worried about shaking off Chris Letang. I'm not worried about where this guy's coming from. And and it's been that way all the time. The commitment of the Penguins to work to get back in the right spots and work to get down to the puck and support it, even when they have numbers, has been impressive and has given the Sharks trouble. Yep. Uh, so, okay, so let's go with our presumptive Conn Smythe picks here. Who do you who, who do you have? Is, is, it, is, is it Kessel in a runaway, or is there someone else that you think isn't getting enough attention? No, well, <laughs> I, you know what? I don't think it's a runaway for probably a couple different reasons. I mean... Part of them you have to address, maybe because it's Phil Kessel, mm. because there's this perceived notion that he's a one-way player, and you know the reputation he had in Toronto follows him to the point where you know they're just other than producing points, what is he doing? 
so if I was voting, I think I would go Kessel would be my number one guy because of his consistency, because of the fact that he's been able to drive that line offensively. I know Nick Benino is good defensively. He does a lot of good things. And I know Carl Hagelin skates fast, but as far as creating, neither one of those two guys is a tremendous creator of offense. Um, they're both skilled and get to the right spots. They don't create it on their own as well as Kessel has helped them do it consistently throughout. Um, the fact that they've been able to be pretty good defensively, you know, you see them out there in San Jose playing against the Thornton line and not really having too much trouble with it. And Phil Kessel's part of that line uh, has been more diligent in the defensive assignments. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that it should be Phil as a leading the leading goal scorer, point getter for the Cup winning team. The other default pick would be Matt Murray, of course. You know, if you're and I don't I don't give him any extra points for being a rookie. He's just the goalie. You don't get Con Smythe points for being a rookie goalie. Just he's right. the goalie and he's played very well, made all the saves. But I think watching Pittsburgh does such a good job in front of him that. He's been excellent. And it's, I think his favorite percentage is 925 or something like that heading in, which yeah. is excellent. But he's not lights out incredible. Hasn't had to steal, steal games. Hasn't stood on his head. Um, you look at those grade-A chances, the home plate, whatever you wanted to find, good scoring chances. Uh, certainly in the final and a lot of other playoffs, they, the opposition just doesn't get a lot. So while Murray's been a great story and he's played excellent, I, I don't think I would give it to him. And I think the other guy, the other couple guys, Crosby and, and Latang, yeah. uh, should get serious consideration for their all-round games, for the amount of minutes Latang plays. And, um, you know, he does have the odd brain cramp, whether it's a turnover <laughs> on the shorthanded in-game, yes. yep. whatever it was. Three, I think, yeah. Three. Um, um, you know, he, he, is, he is, especially without Trevor Daly, as valuable as anyone on Pittsburgh. But uh, to me, it's maybe Kessel, Murray, and Crosby because he's Crosby, I guess, mm, yeah. and he's been and he's been very good as well. But uh, I, I kind of, on a personal level, you know, you know, I'm from Toronto. I live there. I know Phil uh, a little bit personally. I've been out with him, had a beer with him. Um, I very much saw how he played and and how he was perceived and treated in Toronto by fans and media. Yep. And some of his the criticism of his game is justified. Some of his criticisms about his Commitment to team and decisions, whether it's salute it or all those nonsensical things, are fair. A lot of it wasn't. A lot of it wasn't. I mean, a lot of it was he's the best player, highest paid player on a team that's terrible. So let's just pick him to pieces. Um, and that really wasn't fair to him. So for him to to, to squash any thought, well, one you can't with, win with a guy like that um, is ridiculous and might might be proven correct on Thursday. But also that. Um, he's not a big-time player, and he can't come through in the clutch and all those other narratives that make no yep. sense. Yep. Um, I'd love to see him win that cup, raise it over his head. Who knows? He might get it first from Sidney Crosby. Who knows? <laughs> um, but also take a con smice and and uh, show back up in Toronto and say, yeah, thanks, guys. I guess yeah. I'm okay. Yeah, I guess I'm okay. Yeah, no, that would be, that would be a great and it'd be interesting to see how uh whether there's some sort of uh retractions and, and some people kind of uh revisionist history or whether people just admit they were wrong yeah yeah it. i'm sure there will be yeah the, you know a lot of the well he's playing the best ever he's matured and he's in the right role because he's not the lead guy and yeah all of them are partly true um i just think he was he was so heavily scrutinized and criticized in toronto uh for for being really a pretty good player 
um, that it would be it would be great for him to uh, to win to win a con twice. I mean, like, I don't think anyone would have thought that would be happening uh, this quickly in Pittsburgh, especially after a pedestrian regular season. Um, uh, so, I, on a personal level, I would not be disappointed to see him win. Yeah, no, me neither. Uh, okay, we'll get you out of here on the, on this one last question. I was thinking about this, and and I don't want to get you in trouble here, so uh, you can you can plead the fifth Uh-oh. if you want. But but uh, <laughs> let's go back into the time the hot tub time machine and go back to your playing days. And let's let's now. What are you thinking as a player about the potential of a uh, of a team in Vegas? I am thinking, giddy up, when's the road trip? <laughs> it, it would be legitimately. It would be. The schedule comes out whenever it comes out in two weeks. And, yep. you know, when I was playing anywhere but Toronto, my first look would be, okay, when's the first game? And when do I go to Toronto? Like, that's those are the ones I would, and, and what was the Christmas break like? Those are the ones that you would look for. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be, when's the first game? When are we going to Vegas? And how many days off do we have there? And then, oh, yeah, when is Christmas? When is the All-Star break? And all those other things. Absolutely. I think it's going to be amazing if you put me back in the former players' eyes um, to, to go there and have some fun. And, and um, this is Jimmy in Las Vegas. Yeah. And uh, I, I, we, I put some thought in this. And I'm wondering how teams will manage that situation. And if I'm the coach of a team going into Las Vegas, and I, we play Thursday night, and like most teams, you travel in Wednesday, leave Thursday night after the game. If I'm the coach of that team, we head into Vegas and say, okay, boys, this is what the deal is. Wednesday night, night before the game, go do your thing, but like be sensible, get in your room by midnight, whatever, you know, just be a professional. Don't get dragged into the strip and all those things that it can offer because what I'm going to give you for your discipline and professionalism on Wednesday night is that on Thursday, we won't be leaving after the game. You can stay on Thursday night, you can do whatever you want, and we'll travel Friday, and that will be your day off, and you better not be terrible on Saturday's game. Because I think that's probably your best way to manage it, because otherwise, if you're taking off right after the game on Thursday, very likely you might have the odd guy, you know, just sampling some of what Las Vegas can offer at 1 a.m. on Wednesday. So it'll be a fascinating um, case study to see how teams deal with it, and also what Maybe what kind of record is there? Is there a legitimate, tangible home ice advantage for the Las Vegas team? Because guys maybe are a little tired heading to that game. Who knows? Yeah, uh, I know there's been lots of talk. Again, I'm in Toronto that the Raptors play a lot of games on on Sundays at like one in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and the word around the NBA is that you know visiting teams love visiting Toronto. It's a fun town. They like their sports stars, and they, they, they like their nightlife. And a lot of times the thought is that Toronto Raptors benefit from those Sunday noon starts, one starts, because of the nightlife that the city of Toronto can offer. So you only imagine you'd have to time that by about 1,000 for Las Vegas and seeing what kind of impact they might have. But uh, I think it's exciting, regardless of whether I'm a player, fan, uh, commentator, whatever it might be, that uh, Las Vegas, it'll be fun. Yeah, when you started that off by saying I've put a lot of thought into this, I thought you were about to uh, announce your, your comeback to the NHL. <laughs> no, I, mean, I should be done. Yeah, right, exactly. They need a checking for it, or maybe I have to dust off my resume to uh, to go work for Vegas. No, but it's uh, it. Uh, I'll want to get a game there. I'll be curious to see how it all goes down. It'll be fun. Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, Mike, thanks for taking the time, man, and enjoy uh, enjoy the rest of your time in Pittsburgh and and the rest of the series. And I'm sure we'll chat soon. Okay.
Alright, sounds good, thanks. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.